vengeance. I am the knight. I am. Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast. Where each week, my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Brother Will, what is going on this evening? After a long day of hard work, I have mostly stopped, mostly, the bleeding from my asshole. Mostly. We've got it under control. So I have a question. <laughs> ah, the, the, the face Matt is giving me. The face is beautiful. I got a question for you. So we have together been down on a lot of the additions to the Bat family of characters. Uh, the Gardener, Punchline, Ghostmaker. What was the last character you would say who was new to the canon and you were like, that's a good one. That's a good addition to the tapestry that is Batman. We liked Miracle Molly. As forgotten as she's going to be within, you know, three months. Sadly, the character amongst those additions from the tiny and run who's gotten the least use. Yeah. She was in the Tiny and Run and in a couple of Urban Legends shorts, and that was it. I was not in love with the Gardener, but I feel like the Gardener has more potential than many of the others from that run. I just feel like the Gardener needs more time and a story or two where she isn't circling Poison Ivy. Uh, but see, that's her raison d'etre. That's, that's, that's all she is. That's it. Period. End of sentence. This would be a 20... 20- 15 edition luke fox okay that iteration of batwing because i mean lucius had tim slash jace and tiff and tam but luke made his first appearance at that point and i feel like the grown man who wants to join batman's crusade not as a you know sidekick. This isn't a guy looking to be a Robin. His Duke and Harper predate Luke. He's a, a strong character, giving him that connection to Lucius. This was again before Jace was a you know vigilante. So it it was just he was a, a strong character, and I like him. There's something about the the guy who wants to be a hero because he wants to be a hero. He doesn't have a tragedy in his backstory. He's just a guy who wants to join Batman's crusade because, dang it, he wants to do some good. And Yeah, Goth- Gotham is, is full of shit. I want to try to make it better. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's the most recent one who I've really found an affection for with Zdarsky's the night and his use in Batman Inc. Ghostmaker no longer makes me want to tear my hair out the minute he steps on the page, but I'm still not in love with the character. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting concept as a rival slash ally to Batman who is a sociopath. 
he does have some good things going for him. A one bisexual, fun like that. Uh, but the name sucks ass. Just hardcore fucking blows, and that costume fucking blows too. And he's just he's just fucking running around in a sheet. It's Moon Knight without the class. Yeah. So if uh, if he had a better slash different name and a different costume design, I could like him. I really could. And it's hard getting past that very beginning where he's forced into a chapter of Batman's, you know, story that we have seen explored numerous times. Batman waking up one day and deciding, oh, I have this lifelong friend in, in front of me. Let me talk to you about him. It's not believable. We said it before, and I'll say it again. If people are coming to this episode, having not heard one of the episodes where this has come up, especially Ghostmaker and Punchline, more than any of the others of the recent crop of characters, are Poochies. These are characters who were introduced expressly with the you're going to love the hot new character. And I'm a stubborn, crotchety old man. And I was, granted, similarly stubborn and crotchety as a young man. I balk at being told that this is a character you need to love. Punchline still has not grown on me as much. But again, as with anything Tynion does, there's a core of an interesting idea that she is someone who is not corrupted personally by the Joker, but radicalized by the idea of the Joker and now seeks to radicalize those around her. But she herself just bugs me. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. The Teeny Howard miniseries that ran parallel to Howard's run on Catwoman with Punchline, again, did more interesting things with the character, but still just can't get past the poochiness of Punchline. To the point where she popped up in uh, Rosenberg's Joker joining the Legion of Doom and taking Joker's place. And it just, that struck me as, look at how cool she is that she's replacing the Joker here. I mean, the the last great addition to the canon is from the, the stuff from the Snyder run. It's the Court of Owls and Duke Thomas. As much as people seem to want to just sort of let Duke be forgotten, he's a really good character. And at least is a, if not the central figure in the delightful webcomic Wayne Family Adventures, which we are getting a print collection of the first 25 chapters in, I believe it's September. So that means all ages Thanksgiving this year, Wayne Family Adventures Volume 1. Ha That'll be fun. I am excited for this. Harper is a, is a great character quickly forgotten same thing with duke thomas more or less you know if as as much shit as i give him my answer to the question is probably damien as as just a central important character whose 
who's had some durable staying power. Like the thing that bugs the shit out of me when we add characters to the Batman story, it's like, you know, the writer who introduces them plays with them and then they're put on a shelf and forgotten, ignored. And they just, it just, it comes off as so cheap and so fleeting, but Damien has really changed the character of Batman. So yeah, as, as irritating as he can be in the wrong hands, that's my answer. Yeah. Damien is a central figure to the mythos. Absolutely. More so than anyone who's been introduced since. Yeah. Before Damien, I guess the last character before that, that is that much of a central figure would be Cassandra Kane. Because Damien would have been introduced in 06. Cassandra in in 99. Montoya and Spoiler a few years before that. Those characters all kept going. And it's both Harper and Duke and Luke Fox. All of them sort of faded away after their initial appearances. Duke pops up with the Outsiders every now and then. That punchline, those backups and that miniseries set Harper as punchline's sort of nemesis. But the minute punchline isn't a thing, then Harper is also going to have to find a new, as you said, raison d'etre. Again, Jace Fox has potential, but Jace Fox also technically not a new character as Tim was in, as he was introduced as Tim in the 70s, but then disappeared for, you know, 30 ish years, <laughs> with the exception of, you know, the occasional one panel appearance here or there. There is so much potential for that. And it's such a shame that it felt like Ridley was finally hitting his stride on I Am Batman. Just when they ended that book. And I hope that that is Ridley had other commitments and is planning to come back. The fact that that book, his run on that book ended within a month of his run on Black Panther ending as well, strikes me as he has Hollywood stuff he needs to do and will hopefully come back to do more Jace Fox once he's finished those commitments. Because that book ended with a whole lot of unanswered questions. Yeah. And as it was getting like really good and as Ridley's sort of rough spots as a writer were starting to wear off. One last thing before we get into the meat of the episode, as we record earlier today, the first teaser for HBO Max's or Max now, just Max, Uh. the trailer for the Penguin dropped. Have you seen it yet? I have not, but uh, I'm expecting good things. It's a very rough trailer. Like there's behind the scenes footage worked in with finished footage. So it's really not, you know, a, a, a polished trailer. The thing that got me was I saw a headline for it. Penguin goes full Scarface in first teaser. And I realized after watching it, oh, they meant the Pacino movie, but. What I saw, that, I was like, oh, they're bringing in Scarface, too? Oh, oh Matt, Matt, you precious summer child, you. <laughs> I know. In any other context, with the character from anywhere else in comics, I would not have done that. But this freaking character named Scarface, who's a uh... mobster. Okay. Cogglepot. 
But we are not discussing the penguin tonight. But what we are discussing is something that Will is somewhat alluding to in his questions about important characters to the mythos. Because this episode will be dropping uh, right before Mother's Day. So we're reading three stories about the maternal figure in Batman's life, Dr. Leslie Tompkins. The first of the stories of the night is There Is No Hope in Crime Alley. This is Detective Comics, Volume 1, Number 457. The writer is Denny O'Neill, with pencils by Dick Giordano, inks by Giordano and Terry Austin, no colorist is credited, letters by Ben Oda, and edited by E. Nelson Bridwell and Bob Rosakis. The cover date is March of 1976. On the anniversary of his parents' death, Batman returns to Park Row to both honor them and to see the woman who offered him comfort that fateful night, Leslie Tompkins. This is obviously the first appearance of Leslie Tompkins, but it's more than that. This is the first time that the alley where the Waynes were killed is addressed as Crime Alley or as Park Row. And the first time that we see Bruce going back to the alley on the anniversary of their death. This is a key to so much that has happened in the past 40 plus years since its publication. It is also another one of the stories from the greatest Batman stories ever told trade and is probably more appropriate than the Batmite story that didn't feature, you know, Batman. You probably want this in that trade and not uh, and not the Batmite. Uh, but as you surmise when we talk about it, it was probably a page count thing. Yeah, I I thought this was a really interesting story, especially in, in, in a couple of moments. Alfred not knowing what's going on is pretty curious. And Batman having a special rage at the idea of having a gun pointed at him in this place. I could see his typical, like, Batman anger in this era hitting an entirely different level. The Alfred thing is very much a silver bronze age thing. Because you have to remember... In that period, Alfred was not Thomas and Martha's butler. Alfred came to work for Bruce after he had already become Batman. So the fact that Alfred hadn't put two and two together on the date is a bit much, but it's not like Alfred raised Bruce pre-crisis. That is a post-crisis construct. Ah, yes, that makes sense in the back of my mind, knowing that obviously Alfred is added to the canon later. Right. In the, yeah, Alfred doesn't enter comics until quite a few years later. And the initial Alfred is not the Alfred as we know. He was a portly comic relief butler and was streamlined into the Alfred we know later. But even then, when you go back and read Untold Legend of the Batman, which was that sort of synthesis of pre-crisis, all the Batman origin bits. Alfred only becomes the Wayne Bruce's butler later. So 
he wasn't there when the Waynes were killed. But again, he probably could have put two and two together on why this particular day is problematic. Should not take a rocket scientist to figure out why does Bruce go out on this night every year? Why does he uh, act all weird about it? And Leslie is a very different character pre-crisis than she is post-crisis. She isn't a doctor. She's just a nice little old lady, or I guess a nice lady when she found Bruce. So we don't have the connection to Thomas that we have in later stories. She was just the person who happened to be there to help Bruce. And we certainly don't have the attachment to Alfred that we will see in other stories. Yes. At least a good part of the core of Leslie is here from the beginning. The compassion, the fact that she is a person who wants to make society better. And her almost, her wanting to, oh, I'm trying to even think of the word for it. Her pacifism is very clear here, where these guys are mugging her. And she's like, well, I can't give you the money because this is going to the children, but I'll write you a check from my own account. She's willing to help these punks who are trying to rob her because she thinks it would make them better. It's naive, which Leslie post-crisis never is. And it's not weak. Which is important because that's one thing you Leslie Tompkins is never weak. No, it's not it's not cowardice. It's not some kind of weakness. It is it is a strength of character. And this story is in a lot of ways about Batman showing compassion in a few instances until that moment where he is triggered because he walks a little old man home who he saved from being mugged. And, you know, he asks him, you know, you, you're this international man of mystery and the world's greatest detective. Why does this matter to you? And Bruce says to him, the dollar in your wallet matters more to you than thousands to a banker. Crime is crime. And I think that's often forgotten in lesser Batman work that, you know, he's not just out there to beat up the Joker. He's there to help people. We will see later when he's looking for Leslie, he runs into a guy who I assumed was an unhoused person who's like, hey, I remember when you saved me last year on this day from some punks. This is what he does every year. This is about the little crimes. I'm trying to think of something profound to say here because this it does bring up some some heavy ideas that we'll continue to explore in the other stories. But the only thing that sticks in my mind, really, after reading this issue, is that uh, one of the uh, goons is named uh, Gooch. Yeah. That, that's a name. Yeah. And uh, Alexander, uh, out there listening, if you don't know, uh, Gooch is another name for Taint. And you can ask your pa Josh what uh, what a taint is. One of the other 
things again when we're talking about Batman as a little more compassionate when he finds these two guys stealing the radio out of a car he doesn't beat them senseless he does you know smack one when he calls Leslie an old bag but he basically is like I'm giving you a second chance don't screw it up or else he's not as kind to the violent offenders that he comes across in this story but these guys he gives another shot in the order of things that would provoke batman's i think rage justifiably let's see if you disagree with this top three anything that might render an innocent child an orphan at number one. Oh yeah Leslie Tompkins at number two, Alfred at number three. Yeah. And I think the only reason it's Alfred at three is that Alfred can defend himself more easily than Leslie can. That Leslie won't put up a fight and Leslie is inherently a person of peace while Alfred can, you know, hold his own. And as pointed out in was it Eternal... Master Bruce has an issue with guns that I do not have. <laughs> Alfred will shoot a motherfucker. Yep, you do not fuck with Alfred Pennyworth. Alfred has shot motherfuckers. Oh, yes. Also, I had forgotten, having not read this one in a number of years, that this is the source of the title of another of my favorite Leslie Tompkins stories. My beginning and my probable end. Ah, yes, I recognize that. Oh, right. That comes from this story. That's why it's used as the title of that flashback issue. I love how genuinely tender Bruce is with Leslie after he saves her from being mugged. And they walk along and they talk and we get back to the the title about there being no there is no hope in crime alley and he says to her that no there is you are the hope you and people like you are hope in crime alley because she could have left every iteration of leslie tompkins could leave and sometimes does leave for a while but she always comes back because that's where she needs to be. This is where she is needed, whether she's a social worker or a doctor or whatever, she will always come back and she will always do the right thing and is a person of peace, which is why when someday we get to my least favorite Batman story of all time, Oh no. War crimes. It does everything wrong with Leslie. It is the worst example of character assassination I have ever read in comics. Oh, oh. Yeah. Is that in our uh, perspective episode with uh, Robin and Batman? Mm hmm. Oh well, boy. That Robin and Bat right now the, the the question is this is the Matt remembers really hating these stories episode and it is war crimes it is Robin and Batman and it is either a 
Legends of the Dark Knight arc or three Jokers? Like, it might be the Legends of the Dark Knight arc just because I, I can only rant myself so much before my throat will go raw. And I think having war crimes, Robin and Batman and three Jokers in one episode would be too much. I mean, yeah, we got to think about like serious contenders for the crown of worst bat story. War White Knight two, White Knight two is going to come hard, but Robin and Batman is so bad, and it's it's Jeff Lemire's mini from I don't know a couple of years ago, uh, that's just so dark and so miserable. It's the kind of thing that you read and you're like, "Are you okay? Is something wrong?" Yeah, it's 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 going to be the bottom percentile for sure. Right, but see the thing is and. The thing I will argue when we get to war crimes is that White Knight, White Knight 2, Robin and Batman, none of these are canon. None of these affect the overall arc of Batman and his family as characters. War crimes was canon. And if they hadn't found a way to change it, it would have completely destroyed the character of Leslie Tompkins. Completely and utterly destroyed the character so I'm, I'm gonna have you spoil it for me just a little bit D- does she like get a gun and start shooting people like what oh, how I, bad I, is this i'll tell you uh, you know remember war, war crimes is the follow-up to war games you know how stephanie brown died in her clinic leslie killed her oh that's bad leslie actively let stephanie die to prove a point to Bruce. Oh, that's real bad. That's real bad. Yeah, and the story leading up to that reveal is god awful. And then you get that reveal on the last like two pages. Uh and, and I thought in season 1 of Picard when everybody just forgets that the charming little quirky doctor killed someone in cold blood uh and waved that off. I thought that was bad, but no, Leslie this, Tompkins killing someone. That's ooh, that's real bad. Stephanie Brown not at least the quirky doctor on Picard had, you know, like crazy psychic stuff going on. This is just like, I need to prove a point to Bruce that his crusade is a bad idea. So let me let this teenage girl just die. Ooh, that's bad. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to do this stories. Matt remembers hating episode before the year is out. And I, Oh yeah. That is a, a bad bad story especially in the context of every appearance of leslie tompkins before that even the ones that don't get her pacifism quite right and we'll get to one of those in a minute it's just oh it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of the character oh and bruce lets her get away with it yeah she she fled to do missionary work and he just leaves you know basically don't come back to gotham yikes that is that is a punch to the gooch matt yeah but better 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 leslie Tompkins stuff this is this is a much better story this is the core basic idea that leslie is the one person the night that the waynes were killed while all the cops are busy going about their business she's the person who offered him comfort She's the one who saw his tears, 
who held him and who was there for him is important fundamentally, especially in a world without Alfred. It's still important in a world with Alfred, but when you think about it in a world where Bruce didn't have anyone, that there was someone to show him kindness that night is so important to him not breaking. Denny O'Neill had added a lot to the canon, but Leslie is probably his second most important addition to the Batman canon behind the Al Ghouls. And I probably should have talked about this a little bit more at the top when we said that this was going to be an episode about Leslie Tompkins, but we've already digressed a few talking about bad Leslie Tompkins stories. So let me digress a little more in talking about why I love this character as much as I do and why I feel like she is so important. Because we've, we've said it a little bit here. Leslie Tompkins is a pacifist. Leslie presents an option and a point of view that doesn't exist in most superhero comics. Most people who are in Bruce's life and want him to not be Batman anymore at various times when Alfred has stated that is for Alfred about protecting Bruce. He doesn't want to see Bruce get hurt. And Leslie doesn't want to see Bruce get hurt either. That's part of why she does not like him being Batman. But Leslie truly believes that as important as what he does is, the violence that he perpetrates on criminals contributes to a cycle of violence. And yes, taken to an obnoxious extreme, that is the argument of why doesn't Bruce Wayne just stop crime with money? But that's not what Leslie is necessarily saying, because it's not about beating up the underclass specifically. Leslie wouldn't want to see him beat up a corrupt billionaire either. For Leslie, violence just leads to more violence. And that is, well, not a completely unique perspective in superhero comics, is one that appears so rarely. It's refreshing to see. And the the sort of the way out that she offers him in at least one of the stories, probably one of the more redeeming aspects of the, the story, is that you could be a doctor. You could be a healer. You don't have to be a philanthropist. You don't have to try to save the city. Just save one life, right? That honors your father's legacy. You have the skills. You are a genius. Consider it, right? I'm not going to... I'm not going to cut you off. I'm not going to say that you're a terrible person. I don't like what you're doing, but just think about it. Think about a different way. And right. And that was a very nice beat in that story that we're going to get to. Yes. As you said, one of the few redeeming moments in that particular story, you said it before as well. Pacifists in superhero comics are often weak willed, frightened little people even hawk and dove the 
superhero concept of the two brothers who one was this tough big guy and one was his brother who was a pacifist this was in the 60s this was steve ditko so it was about as subtle as a punch in the teeth but even dove who's supposed to be a pacifist is like oh i'm not gonna hit you but i know judo so i can you know use your momentum against you and i'll you know let my brother beat the living hell out of you so he wasn't particularly pacifistic and often when we see pacifists they're weak characters leslie tompkins is never weak leslie has steel in her spine Leslie will stand up to anyone and make it clear what she is thinking. She is one of three, four people who can look Batman in the eye and tell him that he's wrong, who isn't a super person. Her, Alfred, Jim Gordon, and Amanda Waller. That's about it. And she is such a different character. And there is something beautiful about someone who cares so much for the people around her, even the people that would wrong her. It's an incredibly principled position. Those are the reasons why I love Leslie Tompkins and why I think she is so important to the mythos and is one of the things that I felt like has been at something of a loss as Leslie has appeared very sporadically since the, the new 52 reboot after they went through everything they could to get rid of war crimes and bring her back into the fold before the reboot, she just sort of faded because they didn't know what to do with her anymore. And that's a shame. And she, every now and then she'll pop up again. It's like, Oh good. We're going to get more Leslie. And then she, appears for a little bit and then disappears. And we have her in Chip Zdarsky's run right now, but it is an alternate universe world in which Bruce Wayne is dead and Tompkins is just Alfred's love interest. And I think that they, I think they make a great couple, but that shouldn't be what defines Leslie Tompkins. Exactly. But speaking of specific definitions of anything, I think we're, we're good. Uh, that means it's time to put Detective Comics number 457. There's no hope in Crime Alley on the big board. Okay, we are at 246 stories on the big board. Up at number one remains the post-crisis origin of Batman. Batman Year One. At number 50 is... The Superman Annual for the Man Who Has Everything, where Batman tells Robin to think clean thoughts, chum. And still stuck at 69, it's a guy who can go fuck himself. Hush. At 100 is the Final Night crossover. Down at 150 is I Am Batman Begins, the first arc of John Ridley's I Am Batman. At 200 we've got the joker original graphic novel and oh still down at the bottom it's still white knight until apparently we get to war crimes maybe (laughs) white knight still terrible i'm definitely thinking top 50 at least that's exactly what i was about to say top 50 number 50 as we said is for the man who has everything This is more important to the Batman canon than for the man who has everything. 
I feel like Golem of Gotham at 40 might be a ceiling because that is such an emotionally resonant story. And I'm not saying that all of your Leslie Tompkins stuff is good. Leslie Tompkins and her first appearance here is good. It just doesn't hit you in that kind of way. I am willing to say, uh, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to give you a number. We're going to make okay. this easy. I'm okay. saying 42. That All right. What's the first appearance of Leslie Tompkins right before a lonely place of dying. The first appearance of Tim Drake. Perfect. It's funny. We're talking about important additions to the canon. Just looking a couple above that up at 39 is the last Arkham. That's another one that introduces Jeremiah Arkham and Zaz. Again, two characters who have shown lasting impact. You think of Alan Grant, you see, he introduced Jeremiah Arkham, he introduced Scarface, he introduced Zaz, he introduced Anarchy. Those are all characters that appeared with some regularity from their right first appearances. Lesser characters like Ratcatcher, but he still pops up every now and then. Grant created a lot of Batman, especially rogues, who became solid B players in the rogues gallery. But our next story is Faith. This is Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, numbers 21 to 23. The writer is Mike W. Barr, pencils by Bart Sears, inks by Randy Elliott, colors by Steve Olaf, letters by Willie Schubert, and edited by Margaret Clark, Andrew Helfer, and Kevin Dooley. The cover dates are August to October of 1991. After being saved by Batman, John Ackers goes straight, dropping the drugs he was taking and starting a vigilante group to defend the streets called the Batmen. But as Ackers slips further and further into rage and delirium, Batman must face down this group of vigilantes while also facing the condemnation of his actions by Leslie Tompkins. At the outset, let me say that the only way the only way this story makes any sense is if you read it as coming directly between year one and Dark Knight Returns in terms of the tone, Batman's mood and actions, his just sort of nonchalance at, oh, these vigilantes popping up. Yeah, these guys could probably be helpful. We'll see how it plays out. It's very reminiscent of the tone and the themes we see in Returns. And um, yeah, he's kind of a dick throughout this whole fucking story. Now, you haven't read Year Two yet. This bridges the gap in between Year One and Year Two. Year Two is also Mike Barr who wrote this. And it explains how Leslie knows Bruce's identity, which she knows in Year Two. And we didn't know how she suddenly knew in year two. So this was sort of inserted to fill that gap. Barr is the writer who created the post-crisis iteration of Leslie Tompkins. He's the guy who wrote My Beginning and My Probable End and Son of the Demon and Fear Wild. for Sale and Doomsday Book. This is a guy whose Batman is always... Just a little bit off center. He doesn't quite get any of the characters right. We're not so far off that it's complete. Like, well, this isn't 
this character at all. But it's also, this isn't exactly how this character is. Which is why it reads like Frank Miller. And not good Frank Miller. This is the guy who wrote Batman using a dude as a human shield. So the fact that he's in this building that is going to blow up with a a perp, and when bullets start being fired into the building that's going to set off the explosion, he jumps out the window and leaves the, the dealer in the building to get blown up and doesn't show any remorse for the fact that he just let this guy get blown up. And what strikes me, again, is as these batman are rising he's just so nonchalant about it it's like oh all right what do you what do you want me to do about it gordon sure they're they're out there it looks like they're doing good get off my case the fact that he again seems to not even look into it is what strikes me as most odd this is a very much a book of its time bar is talking about a very specific thing with these batman are you familiar with the guardian angels no google guardian angels nyc okay and i will cut out the period while you're googling uh yeah february 1979 created to combat widespread violence and crime on new york city subway system uh, the organization originally trained members to make citizens arrest for violent crimes. Seems like a really bad idea. Uh, and, organization patrols the streets and neighborhoods without involving police or outside authority. If you look at photos of their uniform, they have the same red beret that the Batman do. Yes, I, I believe you are correct in that Barr is definitely speaking to that. I have vague recollections of my youth of being around my grandparents' house while they watched the five o'clock news and being that they were in North Jersey, 25 minutes outside New York, it was New York news. And there was all sorts of talk of the guardian angels in the late eighties and early nineties. So this is absolutely bar commenting on these sort of civilian vigilante groups that were a thing at that particular time. In 1992, Guardian Angels founder issued a public apology for faking several subway rescues in the 80s in order to get publicity for the group. So I'm sure that while that was after this story was released, they were publicity-seeking in the 80s, so that was a thing. So this is absolutely bar commenting on that. It strikes me as him trying to make a point, and so it is a bit heavy-handed in places, many places. Wild. This seems like such a terrible idea. Still going, though. Although they no longer do the citizens arrests which is a a good step in the right direction we can't even trust cops to make them arrest much less untrained wackadoos but on to this particular story this is the first stumble in legends of the dark knight it's not a 
terrible story. But after Shaman, Gothic, Prey, and Venom, this is somewhat of a step down from those first four arcs. Yes. It also, despite Barr being the one who created the crusading Dr. Leslie Tompkins, he doesn't quite get the pacifism. Leslie is bitter and angry in places in this story. Oh, yeah. It's especially like the first issue where she's like, oh, yeah, he's probably going to be back out on the streets, probably going to be back on drugs. I'm just I'm not fucking doing any good out here. And at the beginning of the second where the Batman and some local drug pushers are fighting in the streets and she says, I almost wish they would just wipe each other out. Mm, Nope. That's not Leslie. The compassion she shows for Bruce is not there. And I think if this dealt with Leslie being burned out, Leslie being worn down and having to find some way to build herself back up to a higher point, that attitude would have worked. But we don't get a Leslie who finds her pause again. She's still just about as angry at the end of the book as she is at the beginning. The idea of some guy who Batman saves and who is a little unbalanced and then sets out creating a group of vigilantes to forward the mission of Batman is a neat idea. I think it's a good idea. It just isn't handled in a way that makes sense for Batman. No, he would. I mean, we saw that in Dark Knight. It's like, yeah, you're in hockey pads. He would immediately shut this down. Like he would recognize the guardian angels for what they were dangerously untrained, dangerously unprepared, the sort of characters that he would have to save or that he would have to save other people from. Like this on its face is a terrible idea. Terrible. Yeah, and he says it at one point when he's going in to what turns out to be the booby-trapped house. He sees them. And he's like, I guess I'll have to protect them. I can't, you know, let them get hurt. If you have to make that consideration, that's a problem. And the fact that when he goes to fight a whole bunch of heavily armed guys, the leader of the Batman, Acker, hits a guy who's about to shoot Bruce, that gives him approval like batman is suddenly like good job keep doing what you're doing without looking a little more into this guy because he goes round the bend real fast oh yeah and this we we haven't you know talked about tom king's first arc gotham and gotham girl one of the core reasons why i didn't care for that first story is that batman doesn't look into these people at all right Batman should be most suspicious of anyone who shows up and says, I'm here to help, right? He should want to know everything about them, 
want to know, you know, as we've seen with Justice League, their weaknesses. He should be ready and skeptical to take on anybody who walks into Gotham and says, I want to aid in your mission. Not, yeah, sure, cool, whatever, let's do this. If he looks into Acker, who, when you first meet him at the beginning of this book, he is strung out, wandering down the street, winds up nearly getting hit by the car of one of the drug kingpins of Gotham by sheer coincidence. Gotham, very small town. Yeah. And Bruce winds up saving him from this guy's thugs just beating him to death. The fact that Bruce then doesn't investigate. Batman believes in redemption and second chances. He's not going to write the guy off entirely as, oh, you were a junkie, so I can't trust you. This Batman might. Batman shouldn't. I'll rephrase that. There you go. There you go. But he should be more careful because this guy goes from, oh, I bumped into Batman. Batman, you know, clapped me on the shoulder and said, this is the work we need to do. And goes immediately to, okay, I've got to track down Costas, the drug kingpin who, you know, his guys beat me up and I need to shoot him in the head. Yeah. That'll show Batman how much I love him. Yeah, there's some real John Hinckley uh, vibes to this guy. Oh, yeah. Only Batman is Jodie Foster in this case. This whole story takes place over the course of, what, a month and change? At the At the minimum. I mean, it takes you a while to put together your own vigilante organization. The first issue has a July 5th, because there's dates at the beginning. And then the second issue, when he got the group fully organized and is out there, is August 9th. And uh, no. That, yeah, it's it's a month and change. And the rest of the story takes place over the course of a matter of days. So the whole thing is five weeks. Mm, no, not buying it. And none of the new characters get enough time to really breathe because Acker has Billy, who's his first recruit, who Barr tries to give a little more character to, but it's all very tell, not show. Oh, I was in from Iowa and and I I lost my med school scholarship and and I just wanted to come to Gotham and, and do good. So, you know, I just I just came here and, and signed up with these guys. Yeah, and it's just it's not enough to make us care about him. And Leslie is just so hard in this story. And she's just so doting on Bruce, like, oh, you grew up to be such a good man, and then just is so angry about Batman and then flips almost on a dime. Cause by the end she's at the, the manor bandaging him up and apologizing for having raised him wrong. Well, at the same time, bats is pretty callous toward Leslie. Like He literally says, get out of my way. If you're not with me, you're against me. Yeah. I did not like that bit of dialogue. Uh, no, that was no bueno. Although there's one great, 
beat right after Leslie has found out she calls the manor and oh, gets that Alfred. was good that was good and it you know they're talking how do you let him you know we need to go and help him it's like, I do not believe we would be of much help against the circle in the circles in which Master Bruce runs aren't you worried constantly yes out of three issues that was probably the only really great page the look on alfred's face as he says constantly the apron that says i'm the boss yeah now i'm gonna i'm gonna step on one of your bits here for a second uh-oh ackers has these insane dreams of batman uh-huh. with this like bat jumping out of his chest like the, the head of a bat springing from his chest and batman doesn't speak in word balloons he speaks in just free floating dialogue good god it's unreadable yes this it's, is one of the, one of my favorite bits on the first one especially it's colored yellow and is nearly impossible to read. Oh, no, excuse me, it's green. It's green in the first one, and that's impossible. The yellow's a little better in the second vision. But the green lettering is impossible. I think if we had a digital touch-up, it would be better. Primarily because I don't think it could be any worse. And we get little bits of Jim Gordon, but I think this would have served from there being more Gordon, more about how the GCPD is interacting with these Batman. And also, Bart Sears's art is not great. The flashback to Leslie finding Bruce in the alley, Bruce looks like he's like 15. Yeah. He's nearly an adult height sears does not know how to draw children no and and sears is always an odd artist his characters are all very tall and very ripply muscled and gangly this was a story that would have benefited from a more realistic art style because it's supposed to be so gritty but it's just awkward looking and ends also on a one of those wink at the camera moments where Bruce thinking, boy, wouldn't it be great if I had someone to work with? And then we see Dick Grayson reading a comic about Batman saying, boy, wouldn't it be great if we got to see Batman when we, you know, played Gotham? Oh, son, that won't be for a long time. Uh... Yeah, those wink at the camera endings don't work in general and especially that kind of wink at the camera ending and i don't know if Barr intended to ever come back to ackers or if his end with him just surrounded by criminals you're supposed to take it as yeah they're about to beat this guy to death he is severely unbalanced this is a guy who if arkham actually you know was a mental health institution that could help people <laughs> he would be a, a Good candidate for that, but Arkham is not that. No, nobody ever goes into Arkham and comes out better. Great White Shark taught us that. Ha <laughs> ha! Look, yeah, man, he, he wanted to be into Arkham. What are you going to do? This strikes me as being set right on the heels of year one and 
not getting the characters quite right because it has to take place in between year one and year two the characters are right if if you're with frank miller's interpretation of them yeah but i think that's it oh that means it's time to put legend of the dark knight faith on the big board this is not up with the better bar that we've done this isn't up with doomsday book and my beginning and my probable end son of the demon is all the way down at 181 this is not as good as son of the demon no son of the demon was at least like a fun rambo comic yeah son of the demon is if batman were a little less kill happy in that book that book would be up in the upper 100s but it's got some serious out of character batman there well i think it's easier to find this thing's floor than it is to find its ceiling i mean it's not offensive we're getting to that Ugh. this doesn't Ugh. fall in that lowest of echelons it's in the 200s. Yeah. It, it, it can't beat Holy Terror. No, never. Okay, well, just, just as a, a thought experiment. Okay. Last week's Bruce Wayne Not Super also fundamentally gets Batman wrong, but better or worse than that? I still think this is this is consistent with returns. So... It is not as wrong as not super is. Yes. So that puts it, that gives us a very narrow window because Holy Terror is 205 and not super is 208. Now, in all fairness, when we do a re rank, Holy Terror is moving considerably up the list. Yes. You, you sweet, sweet monkey astronaut. I'd put this below Bat Mites New York Adventure, right above not super. Sounds good. New 208. And our final story of the night is The Surrogate. This is Detective Comics Volume 1, numbers 791 to 793. The writer is Anderson Gabrich, with pencils by Pete Woods, inks by Cam Smith, colors by Jason Wright, letters by Clem Robbins, and edited by Bob Shrek and Michael Wright. The cover dates are April to June of 2004. A pregnant teenager stumbles into the Tompkins Clinic with a gunshot wound. While Leslie is able to stabilize her, the clock is ticking before a surgery must be done that will either save the girl or the baby. Leslie asks Batman to find the girl's next of kin as quickly as he can, and this mission sends him down a road that leads to gangs and supervillains and places Leslie's life in danger. Where did we come across the other part of this story, either before this or after this? Is this War Games? This is feeding into War Games. War Games is 796. So there's a two-parter and a one-off in between this and War Games. Mm. Freeze, while it is not made clear, we don't know who Mr. Freeze is working for in this story. I am fairly certain that they never make it clear, but I'm pretty sure it's Black Mask. He's fomenting problems in the gang so Black Mask can swoop in. This was bad. Yes. While trying to 
come up with stories for this episode. I wanted to avoid stories where Leslie was sort of peripheral, where there was just, you know, oh, Leslie is in here patching up Bruce. And I also wanted to avoid No Man's Land because we're trying to do that in some semblance of order. And Leslie has a huge part to play in various chapters of No Man's Land. A lot of the best Leslie Tompkins is in and around No Man's Land or in Brubaker's run on Catwoman. And again, I'd rather try to do that at least somewhat in order so you can kind of get the arc. So I was like, oh, let me, let me go with this one. And I should have remembered that Gabrich's run on Detective has like one or two really good issues and everything else is best left forgotten. Yeah, uh, because the parts of this story that weren't bordering on racism were just racist. Yes. To a point where towards the end, the writer, Gabrich, actively hangs a lampshade on the fact that he's playing into a stereotype. Like Batman says, your story couldn't be more of a stereotype. That doesn't make it good. No. Pulling out the fact that your story is racially insensitive just means that you're aware that you're being lazy. And the fact that you would write a story in such a way and that you would have dialogue that is a white person correcting African-American vernacular English. Yeah. Like, Jesus Christ, that is so cringy. I read that and I, I'm pretty sure that my note, oh, where, uh, my note is something to exactly that effect. That it's like, oh, why did you have Batman here correct the grammar of this small child? Oh, oh boy. And there's all this stuff going on in this story that doesn't need to be here. Why do we need Mr. Freeze in this story? Somebody's got to make the ice bullets, Matt. Why do we need ice bullets in this story? I don't know. To set up war games? Only we don't get much in the way of freeze in war games. And we didn't need all of this to set up Orpheus as the guy who's Batman's plant within the gangs by him running the gangs on the hill. We didn't need to spend all this time with these truly terrible stereotypes. I mean, our main characters, you know, our, our main antagonistic characters are a record producer who is trying to run the gangs in Gotham's predominantly black neighborhood of the hill. And his wife slash main act, if Empire didn't post-date this, I would assume that Gabriel was just doing, hey, let's do Empire in Gotham. Except that had, you know, good actors doing good work, and this is just poorly written. And at least, I believe Empire was created by black creators versus this, where it's a white guy writing a bunch of truly awful stereotypical dialogue. Yes. And who in their right mind said, yeah, let's use a former Gotham football linebacker who 
was involved in a scandal about teenage prostitutes. That's just not good. No, you go to jail for that stuff. That's not something that would just be a scandal. Right. You know what? If he was caught in a scandal with, you know, prostitutes, of age prostitutes. Yeah, you you could get away with that. Underage prostitutes, you go to jail. Yeah, e- even in Gotham. Yeah. Did no editor say, yeah, let's call this guy Biggie Tiny. That's a not at all a terrible name and a stereotype name. <sighs> and, okay, just, and this is a minor point, but it's one that really bugged me. So not only do we get the ice bullets, but Mr. Freeze eventually gives Biggie and his guys freeze blast armor. And in the end, one of the pop star Lachey's bodyguards takes the armor off of one of those guys to go after Freeze for payback. And Bruce's like, oh, it's uh, Marquis Lachey's shadow. We got no indication of that. We didn't know his name before three pages before the story is done. It's suddenly introducing this character who was a nameless background henchman and suddenly trying to give him something more than that with three pages left in the story. He was just a gooch and now you're trying to make him into a big player. No. You could have removed so much of the effect offensive stuff from this story the basic idea that there is the pregnant dying woman with no id and batman needs to find her next of kin before the clock runs out and it's leslie who asks him to do this and leslie who asks him to not employ violence while doing it if you remove all of the gangs and all of that, and you just did that, a detective story of Batman going through this and eventually having to get into, you know, some something seedy because the girl, woman, preferably make her older than 15. Um, yes, please. The woman was shot. And so he has to go down into the rabbit hole and more of him having to struggle with not being violent. The only time that comes up is, oh God, Biggie coming at him, him ducking and avoiding him rather than hitting him until Biggie runs into a wall and knocks himself out. But that idea, that core idea is a really interesting idea. Batman having to not use violence, Batman having to solve this mystery, having the ticking clock, That's a really good idea. It's just inserting all of this truly stereotypical racist stuff. And it seems like it would have been a good moment for Leslie at the end to not say, it's clear that you're a terrible person, but you are her next of kin. Like she should have just said, I am going to do what's best for her. Fuck you, you terrible piece of shit. I am I am the doctor. I'm going to make the decisions here. I don't care whether you want the baby. And it's clearly you just want the baby. Right. Because if you want 
to, to know the, the just how stereotypical and racist if you haven't read this story and lucky you that you didn't have to read this story. So the pregnant girl, at least as we are led to believe until the very end, is pop star Lachey's sister, who is the surrogate for her and her producer, gangster husband, Capo. Only by the end, what we learn is, oh no, Nisha, the girl, is actually Lachey's daughter that she had when she was 14 and left with her mother to raise. And she was the teenage prostitute that Biggie knocked up. And so they were watching her so they could have the baby and Lachey didn't have to go through actually being pregnant so she could forward her image. Great stuff. A it plus is, work all around. It is a million stereotypes. It is just awful story. And while Leslie is not weak, there's a lot of moments where she just sort of lets these things go on around her and doesn't speak up particularly. The, the most she speaks up is, you need to make a choice. You need to make a choice. Leslie Tompkins has steel. Yes. Leslie Tompkins also is, is in a situation where she knows they can't kill her because if they kill her, then Nisha and the baby will die. So she has a bargaining chip. She doesn't have to be quiet. Leslie Tompkins would stand up and instead she is just sort of quietly letting this disaster go on around her. She's kidnapped and in the end, she and Bruce have to deliver the baby in the basement of a collapsed building, and it's it's rough. Yeah, it's rough. And we're also shown interspersed through this flashbacks of Leslie and Bruce and Alfred as Bruce grows up. And some of these are very good. The early ones where you first see Leslie talking to Bruce, talking about Thomas. It's her talking to Alfred about what she needs to do and what Alfred needs to help to support Bruce. And then like, we get a great moment where he's like, it's clear it's very shortly after the Waynes died and Leslie you know, tells him she'll be there. And she gives him this awkward hug. And Bruce is just sort of there, sort of quiet and unmoving. And it's like, yes, Leslie would do that. Leslie would be there. And she's not going to give up and just let this happen. And it's in one of those flashbacks that we see her and Alfred have this, a couple of those flashbacks, we see them have this flirtation. We also get a moment in that first flashback where she's talking to Alfred, where he's, you know, saying that, you know, it, it might be good that she'll be staying with you for a little bit. And while you don't see them because you're watching Bruce, you can tell that, that Alfred is broken up by the death of the Waynes too. And that is so rarely explored. I wish we could see a little more at some point of Alfred having to process the death of Thomas and Martha and the responsibility of him being Bruce's guardian now, but that would not have been handled properly in this story. No. And, and I wish 
I wish Zdarsky had been given the opportunity in this current arc to get into some deeper ideas. Just like I wish his first arc hadn't been so action-y, robot-y. Yeah, we've both read Newburn. That shit is incredible. Zdarsky can write some serious, powerful, just great stuff if given the opportunity. Just like Tinian. But just that little bit of Alfred being angry in this alternate universe of somebody defiling Bruce Wayne's grave. Like that anger is certainly a part of grief, like grief at losing Bruce. And that would certainly be part of losing Thomas too. You can only imagine how much deeper it is. Michael Caine did it so well in uh, Dark Knight Rises. Like I failed you like that. Just that guilt that Alfred would carry uh, in that situation. So good. And he might have, he might have uh, guilt over Thomas too. The less said about earth one, the better. But if the idea was maybe a little bit of Alfred was supposed to be a bodyguard, he was supposed to keep them safe, not just to be a butler, but to keep them safe, that grief and that burden would be interesting to explore. Even without the bodyguard concept, normally I would have been your driver. I normally drive you wherever you need, but that night you decided to drive yourself. You gave me the night off, and that was the night that this happened. Mm-hmm. There's a level of survivor's guilt wouldn't be the right word, but just, yeah. A misplaced sense of responsibility. Yes, that that should be there, and I would love to see that explored more. But then we get into yet another of Matt's least favorite racist comic book tropes, because uh... Leslie leaves Gotham. Uh, white savior even worse than just white savior because if leslie went to do missionary work in nigeria it's white savior but it's a place south sudan it's a place she did missionary work in africa you're saying africa is not a country yeah homogenous Africa. Mm. Comic book writers. Africa is a large continent. It's very large. Very big. With many, many, many nations that are all very different. Yes. Not all of them have tiny villages with, you know, nearby guerrillas and warlords. Many cities are quite modern and industrialized. Yes. But, as always, in such lazy comic book writing, it is Africa. There are scare quotes that I would like to believe you could hear right there. But in case you didn't, that last Africa was in scare quotes. It was. I saw them. It is lazy, lazy writing. Oh, and and let's also not forget that when Bruce is looking for Nisha's next of kin, he winds up going to a foster home where, while it is not made expressly clear in the dialogue, there are, you know, seven kids jammed into one room with no bed because, you know, the majority of foster parents aren't people really doing their best to try to help children. They are all terrible people 
who are just looking to get money out of the system. Oh, yes, of course. Because, again, let's just play into one more stereotype. Listen, the foster system has many, many, many problems. There are all kinds of things that are not good within the system, but painting every foster family with that same stereotypical SVU brush is is not good either because there are a lot of people who really and truly are trying to help these kids. Yeah, and and you you, you said it earlier, it's just lazy writing. It's what you get with SU, SVU. It's a just a lazy attack on all uh, government programs and efforts. Like, oh, well, because it's not 100% perfect, it has to be bad. And as you said, this is playing into the laziest sort of worst case scenario stereotype of it but hey at least we got a truly graphic description of a c-section yeah that may or may not have been medically accurate i wouldn't i can't speak to that i'm not a real doctor no but boy we get like two pages of describing every step of doing what is basically battlefield surgery to get the baby delivered in as stark darkest terms as possible yeah there's like three good scenes in this book that the first scene with bruce and alfred with bruce and leslie the scene between alfred and leslie and the very end where bruce and leslie are walking through the gardens of wayne manor and she's talking to him about you know being a doctor and that beautiful line where he says to Leslie, I didn't get my belief in the sanctity of life from my father. I got it from you. It's a very, very upsetting story. Yeah, quite. This is going to be very low. <laughs> but it, it, at least it did end with some semblance of having a point that as much as Bruce might grieve for Thomas and Martha. He did have surrogate parents who cared about him in Alfred and Leslie. Yes. Who cared and continue to care about him. Absolutely true. I just wish we could have gotten that point made in a story that was not this racist. And we didn't even read the backups for this. Yeah, no. When we read the next one that that one will be because th- this isn't done like this arc is done but Lachey is back in the next two-parter i i don't i don't wanna <laughs> not anytime soon no uh hush and Lachey might have to go on the no more for 2023 list together yeah we have a two-parter with the, more with the hill and Lachey, and the tarantula from nightwing shows up and then we have the the one that I remember being good from this run. That's a Batman, Stephanie Brown, Robin dealing with Zaz on a rampage story. One off. It's a one off. And then we go right into war games. Where Stephanie Brown is unceremoniously kicked to the curb. Oh yeah. She's fridged. Because Literally, if Leslie kills her to make a point to Bruce. It is like the most literal fridging of all time. Oh, it's so bad. Oh, war crimes is so bad. We'll get there. 
we'll get there and it will be me just screaming expletives for 20 minutes. Sounds like a great episode, Matt. And with that, I think it's time to protect comics, the surrogate on the bottom of the big board. Okay, so we are in that very bottom tier here. We are in the patently offensive range. So bottom 10. Yeah, 240s. Mm. Bottom eight at this point. So somewhere below fear of the dark. Anything fear of the dark on down. Uh, wait. Where's fear of the dark? Fear of the dark is two forty. That's the Dawnbreaker. Ah, I have it. I have it down. It's just simply the Dawnbreaker. Okay. See that? I think that this is below that because yeah, that's that's not good in general. But that winds up this low. More even because its creator is so utterly reprehensible that Skyver being the artist on that drops it like an additional like 10 to 15 places below where it would have been if we it was drawn by another artist. I think the racism in the blue, the gray, and the bat is less awful, question mark? It is more well-intentioned. Yeah. That is white writer trying to do something like, we're going to call this Black Regiment the Dark Knight. See, we're kind of letting them reclaim that. It's wrong. It's wrong-headed. But it's not playing into all of these god-awful racial stereotypes that this one Yeah rolls around in like stink like just oh i love it i love it we're in the bottom five because again widening gyre only falls apart in the last issue that's true below that we have now we have silent but deadly which is the superboy issue with batgirl which is misogynist and clumsy and below that we have batman versus the undead which is another one that has harmful, awful black stereotypes. Below that, we have Stop Me If You've Heard This One, where Lois Lane makes an eating disorder joke and makes two women run into a bathroom to vomit. I want to say this is either right above or right below 246. Yes. yes. I, I feel like this this is offensive and bad and terrible, but we don't get that perfect combination of bad and terrible and just a miserable experience to read, right? This is by no means a page turner, but you're not like, please, dear God, would I die before I get to the end of this book so I would not have to finish it. Yes. All of those last three, all of them are that. Batman versus the undead was what it was five issues as opposed to six and the first two were actually almost palatable and then it went off the deep end yeah this thing is unpalatable from page page one of this has the receptionist at the tompkins clinic and one of the other doctors talking about lachey and using words that i will not repeat but are really just 
terrible words that you use about women who may or may not be promiscuous. Mm. It's it's ugly from page one. You know what? I think this is below 246 because, you know, stop me if you've heard this one, is equally offensive, but at least in some places, it's got some really nice Ed McGinnis art. Pete Wood's art here is not bad, but it is completely unmemorable. That's a good way to put it. It is just house style, bland, just get the story told art. Covers are nice though. Yes. Oh, the, the Tim Sale covers. That was the thing that made me remember this. The first cover very specifically of Leslie holding a young Bruce with Batman's head in the in the window in the background is a really nice, really striking cover. But yeah, this is 247. Oof. Truly, truly rarefied air. Or the opposite thereof. Rarefied depths. Yeah. Leslie Tompkins deserves better. After that, that, that does it for this week. Next week, it's three stories about Bruce Wayne and the Wayne family. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers. Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names, June, Kim Ann, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Tubats, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sregioli, David Wheel, and Alexander Wheel for their support. My boys! You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash Batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats. You can follow me on Twitter at MattLast1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.